Stand-up comedian Alex Elderman addresses social, cultural, and religious differences of being Jewish with humor. He describes learning what was required to keep the law at the same time he learned what it meant to be Jewish at an early age. I'm like five or six years old, he said. I'm at a child's birthday party at a Chuck E. Cheese in Watertown, Massachusetts. I reached for a slice of pizza that had some sausage on it, and my grandfather was there. He just slapped my hand away and said, you can't have that, we're Jewish. I turned around to him and asked, what does that mean? And with a straight face, he said, it means you'll never be happy. Religious legalism is not exclusive to Judaism. The same differentiation in separatism was true of my experience growing up in a conservative evangelical church located in the Bible Belt of the Midwest. Church traditions and Christian practices required choices to conform and behavior that aligned with biblical commandments. We used to make fun of the prohibitions with a rhyming jingle. You can't dance, you can't drink, and you can't chew and you can't go with girls that do. The way we interpret scripture and teach it to our children can suppress their understanding of God and to know life can be fun and enjoyable. Is this what Jesus meant when he said to his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the professional interpreters and practitioners of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He not only articulated examples of the law, but reinforced its demands with his own interpretation. The law forbid murder, but Jesus demands we take seriously the anger inside us, which is at the root of all acts of violence. The law forbids adultery, but Jesus says the lust that arises in our hearts is equivalent to committing adultery. And Therefore, we must treat it seriously. In today's text, Jesus gives three more legal examples, the law of oaths and making pledges, the law of retaliation, and the law of love. Once again, he raises the bar on how to live beyond the parameters of the law in order to internalize and fulfill its true intent. As we listen to the reading of Matthew 5, 33 through 48, we will hear each topic introduced by the phrase, you have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you, which signals Jesus' interpretation. He provides illustrations to clarify his meaning. The response Jesus calls for seems unnatural, if not humanly impossible. That is, until we realize he is describing what it means to live as kingdom subjects. People whose lives have been revitalized by God's grace and now seek to honor God with their actions. This is what Jesus means by the greater righteousness, living in right relationship with God and with everyone else. Let's pay attention to Jesus' words read for us by Patrice Freire. Today's scripture reading is found in the Common English Bible in Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 33 through 48. Listen as we hear Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Praise be to God. This is the word of God. Amen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not simply raising the bar for righteousness, as if holy living can only be attained by being miserable. He is raising a people who will live up to God's courageous call, people who will be God's light in the world and God's salt of the earth, people through whom God can bless all people. Jesus calls us to belong to a community that lives out God's grace and demonstrates God's love. We'll look at each of the three law topics and how Jesus amplifies them in view of kingdom living, and then weigh the significance of Jesus' summary statement in verse 48. First, let's look at the law regarding oaths and making pledges. Jesus speaks of two kinds of oaths, one referring to swearing falsely or committing perjury, and the other referring to keeping an oath or making a pledge to God. The first is an assertion by which one affirms or denies having done something. The second involves a promise to do or not do something. The first measures honesty, the second faithfulness. Both have in common a formulaic expression that makes use of God's name as guarantor of the speaker's veracity or faithfulness. Jesus reminds his listeners of the overriding command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And whereas the law assumes a person may be dishonest, 
Jesus forbids the use of any false word. He demands our use of words be characterized by total honesty. Better to think before we speak, mean what we say, and hold our tongue than overuse it. In short, Jesus expects God's kingdom subjects to be honest in all their relationships and truthful in what we say. The second topic has to do with the law of retaliation. Jesus expects a new kind of righteousness in how we treat others and a new kind of justice in our response to how others might mistreat us, a justice that is healing, restorative, and creative. The old kind of justice was designed to prevent revenge from running away with itself. God's law limited the degree of retaliation, no more than an eye for an eye, no more than what is warranted should be the way we respond as a victim of a wrong. Jesus' sense of justice is even more demanding. Not only does he say, make no retaliation at all, but he also says, give no resistance to one who is admittedly bad. The four illustrations that Jesus gives support a principle of not standing up for one's own rights, of not defending one's honor, of allowing others to take advantage. Commentators have tried to soften the impact and implications of Jesus' words by offering historical and cultural context, citing that they were spoken, spoken in a culture, in a shame-based culture with particulars. For example, to be struck on the right cheek in that world most commonly meant to be hit with the back of the right hand. It was considered an act of insult and injury toward a person of inferior standing, such as a slave, a child, or even a spouse. The person striking the blow thought it was within their right to treat an inferior in this way. But by offering this person your other cheek, you in essence are saying, hit me again if you like, but I stand before you now as your equal. If someone powerful attempts to sue you for the shirt off your back, Jesus says, Give the, and, and you know you're in no position to win, then Jesus in effect says, use your power to hand over your other garment as well. Perhaps then you will expose their shame for having reduced you to a state of impoverished nakedness. Roman soldiers had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment for up to one mile, but no more than that. Instead of resisting, you can do something even better, Jesus says. Go two miles. This act turns the table on the soldier, who may even be held responsible for violating the law. No matter how much we try to explain the actions Jesus calls for, we consider them to be extreme, unwelcome, and in most cases unworkable in the real world. Who can live like this? Who wants to? This past week, I had my friends at Juvenile Hall read this passage, and then I asked them what they thought about what Jesus was saying. They said, this is not possible. It doesn't work. 
Such behavior would make you weak and people will walk all over you. I then offered this qualification. I agree with you, but you're picturing two people in this interaction. What if you add a third person into the equation? What if God is part of this interaction such that you're not only responding to an offender or perpetrator, but you're doing so in the presence of God? What might it look like if you didn't act out of your own character in a response of humiliation, frustration, and anger, but instead your response reflects God's character? Once we make God part of the equation, the calculations change entirely. For example, if the relationship with my spouse is not good, do I feed my ego by saying I deserve better? Or do I accept the challenge to be better and ask for God's help to do so? If someone takes advantage of me, do I contemplate how to get even and gain some sense of satisfaction? Or do I accept the challenge to rely on God to initiate a greater purpose? I think this is what Jesus is articulating. He speaks of relationships which are being reordered by the presence of God's kingdom, God's way of salvation and wholeness and the defeat of evil. It's no longer justice for justice sake. The basis of one's behavior now is, a is not a matter of advancing my interests or defending my rights, but choosing to value and honor the interests of others. What is primary is not, on, is not insisting on my way, but choosing God's way of being gracious toward others. It takes courage to be the better person, to do what is of greater good for someone who doesn't choose that for themselves. The third topic is the law of love. The statement, hate one's enemy, is not found in the law, but is an implied corollary of the religious distinction between those who live within God's covenant and those who are outside of it. Neighbor was a religious designation for a fellow member of God's chosen people. The command to love one's neighbor in this restrictive sense implied the converse was also true. Someone outside of, of God's people could be despised and hated as such. Jesus counters this legalistic view with the command to love one's enemies and pray for one's persecutors. This elevated ethic of love is one of the major distinctives of Jesus' teaching. Loving those who share our worldview does not distinguish us at all. Even the worst examples of moral behavior, that of tax collectors or pagans, do as much. Jesus calls for behavior indicative of our new relationship of wholeness brought about by God's redemptive work in history. Jesus was not calling for us to do the impossible. Rather, he was trying to help us live as people who have become redirected by God's grace. 
people who see others as made in God's image, subjects of God's care and attention, and therefore worthy of ours as well. To love others in the same way God does without determining the amount of love or limiting our willingness to offer it, but doing so without reservation. Verse 48 closes this section of Jesus' sermon. How we translate it illustrates how people have misapplied Jesus' explanation of the law. Most of us are familiar with the King James, the NIV, and the New Revised Standard Version translations. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We immediately throw up our hands in defeat. That's not possible. Or we consider this and most other statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to be too idealistic. Yet the command does not refer to moral perfection in the sense of being perfect or to a legal perfection in the sense of keeping the whole law, but rather it refers to one's relational standing with God and how we relate to others. Conduct that grows out of our relationship rather than produces it. As God's people made new in Jesus Christ, we are to reflect God's character. Instead of translating it, be perfect, the better translation is be complete in our ability and our willingness to love, which is at the heart of God's will for all of humanity. As the Common English Bible says it, be complete in showing love to everyone the way God loves you. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase version, the message, he practically interprets the meaning of the translation. In a word, what I'm saying is this, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live, live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others, the way God lives toward you. May we have the courage to live so graciously and love so generously. Amen.